to Truth Well Spoken, the official podcast for McCann Health and an opportunity to connect across disciplines, companies, and countries in our mutual pursuit of endless truth seeking. I'm your host, Kelly O'Grady, and for episode 17, I am speaking with Dane Schroeder, who is joining us from McCann Managed Markets. He has graciously accepted our invitation to discuss an important and timely topic, patient access. Dane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, good afternoon. So, Dane, just for a little introduction um, for those who are listening that don't know you personally, can you give me a bit of a background on yourself and just touch on your expertise and um, some interests tied into our topic today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I am uh, Dane Schroeder. Once again, I uh, lead one of the operating units at McCann Health Managed Markets. Been with this team uh, going on 17 years now, so it's uh, kind of a, kind of one of these lifers at, at in the McCann network here. Um, and during that time, I've largely been focused in this area of patient access, affordability, reimbursement, all of the above. We also have a significant um, portion of the business at managed markets um, that's more focused on the market access side of things, which I do dabble in. But my real passion area is uh, is the patient specifically in that patient access bucket. That's great. Um, and I'd love to hear the passion just from uh, you speaking about it. How would you define market access versus patient access? And what's the key differences there? That's actually a uh, a real good question, and I'll, I'll be honest, there's no real standard industry definition, but I think the way we like to look at it is um, sort of like that pre and post prescription uh, standpoint. So pre-prescription, you look at getting medications accessible through, through the payer's um, perspective, right? Are they going to cover it? Are they going to put it on a specific uh, tier on the formulary? Are they going to contract in such uh, certain ways? And then what techniques might they use to kind of manage access to those drugs? You've, you've probably seen things like quantity limits when you've gone and done something at the pharmacy, um, step edits where they might limit what drugs you have to take first before you can get on a certain medication, things like that. So it's kind of like all those things that uh, is set up between sort of the business entities ahead of time. Am I, as a member of you know, let's say United Healthcare, as an example, a uh, able to get a specific drug if it's prescribed to me. Um, that's sort of the market access side of things. And then on the patient access perspective, it's it's a little bit more individualized, right? Um, am I able to go to my doctor in this location, um, get my treatment, get this medicine? Um, can I afford it, right? Is it something that's within my reach to get? Um, you know, what is my cost that's associated with it? what affordability programs might be out there, things of that nature. So more uh, kind of logistical and individual, I would say, on the patient access side. Uh, I, was, I was actually trying to find a good analogy in my head the other day, and I kind of likened it to going to Best Buy and buying a TV, right? Best Buy has to have an agreement with Samsung, LG, a number of other TV manufacturers to have those TVs available in their store. They've got to have a partnership with Visa, MasterCard, all those things to process my payments. Maybe they'll take cash, whatever. That's sort of like the market access landscape of it. And on the patient perspective, you know, is that TV in my Best Buy store? Can I afford to pay it? Can I get a coupon through Samsung or somebody else for the price of that TV? 
And, you know, realistically, can I get it in my car once I buy it and bring it home and, you know, put it up on my wall? So it's kind of like the the two sides of the coin here. Everything has to really come together in order for me to have access to that TV or in this case, healthcare. So I don't know right. if that's helpful or, uh, you know, maybe I just caused a little more confusion. No, no more confusion. Um, definitely something that I feel that I personally can relate to. And I'm sure many other people, I mean, just with going in and, you know, you're prescribed this medication and this is what your doctor is recommending and you ex you experience some barriers to getting it. And I think the analogy you use is really interesting. Just talking about TVs and Best Buy, I think that that just shows how many barriers exist just for one somewhat simple process of, you know, getting a medication. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot that goes into it. Can you expand on some of the barriers that exist for patient access today? I know you mentioned quite a few of them. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I mentioned one sort of in passing as we talked about what is market access all about. But, you know, we think about insurers, payers in general, sometimes that's the government, sometimes that's, you know, individuals, etc. A lot of what is used to kind of limit use or ensure appropriate use of medications, you know, is, is what we call utilization management techniques. So things like setting um, those formularies, like we talked about a minute before, things like having a prior authorization for um, a drug that you might be prescribed, right? What is the medical evidence needed as a payer that I need to see before I'm going to allow this to take place? Again, quantity limits, step edits, all these kind of things that I might just throw in there. And again, it's, it's sort of serving a dual purpose. One is I want to make sure that the right treatment is being used for the right patient, number one, right? But it's also a cost containment mechanism, right? And I want to make sure that I'm not paying for something that I shouldn't be or that I know don't need to be paying for. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of issue number one. And that's been going on for a long time, right? We've all experience that. I think more and more we've seen recently like different costs shifting to patients, right? You're seeing higher premiums, higher deductibles across your insurance, the copays, coinsurance even, even some programs now that are taking advantage of how the uh, manufacturer support programs work to say, you know, we're, we're going to leverage some of those dollars in different ways or, you know, make sure we still get the cut from the patient, et cetera. So there are a number of ways that costs are then shifted to patients. And, um, you know, we see that trend continuing and, and different mechanisms um, coming into play all the time. Other things, like I mentioned before, specific site of care, right? I, I may want to go get treatment at the doctor I'm comfortable with, who I've been going to for years. Um, or I may want to go into the hospital setting. And in some cases, you know, the payer is going to say, no, it's cheaper for us to use um, an alternate infusion site or an alternate treatment location. So we're going to mandate that you go there instead. And that could lead to any number of things like transportation issues, et cetera. Um, so all these things can just happen and make it more difficult for me on the, the receiving end to get that care that's been prescribed. Absolutely. And just thinking, I guess now that leads me into another question. How do you consider the 6C, the conscious inclusion C that we've recently included into our strategic process? How would you consider that as you tackle patient access across these challenges that you just mentioned? It's a great question. I think the last couple of years, two to three years, right, as the pandemic has uh, been raging on, we've seen a lot of 
these socioeconomic issues and, and social determinants of health really coming to the forefront of the discussion. Um, and it's a great thing that it's being flagged because for so long, I think this was kind of flying under the radar in a lot of ways um, and it wasn't well acknowledged. But I think when we take a look at that 6C, conscious inclusion, um, you know, doing a situational analysis, we're looking at things like what does the patient population look like? Um, what specific challenges um, might that population have, right? If there's, you know, a product that leans more towards a specific ethnic group, um, you know, what are some of not only the socioeconomic considerations, but also just like cultural differences? How do you talk to this population different? How do they interact with the healthcare system at large differently? This can lead to, you know, different coverage scenarios. It can lead to higher cost barriers, right, with, with lower income groups. Um, but you can also think about, you know, specific disease states. I'll use asthma as an example. We know that it's not only more prevalent in certain ethnic groups, it's also much more prevalent uh, in urban areas, right, where you see a lot more uh, pollution. So it's all these different factors that kind of wrap around who are these patients, you know, beyond their race, their sex, uh, all those kind of uh, categories and looking at the whole person and really, uh, really developing a sense of who they are and how we can approach them a little bit differently. You know, the one thing I'll just throw into that with some of these kind of lower socioeconomic groups, the unfortunate part of the equation too, is that, you know, there's less preventative care. There's, there's less screening going on in general. So you see oftentimes later engagement with the healthcare system and sicker patients overall, right? And higher cost treatments. So all these things kind of snowball in a way. You have maybe the most vulnerable people maybe being hit with the worst of the worst situations, right? So those are the kind of people we look at and we say, you know, how can we address their situation and really make it an, a more equitable situation for these guys? It's really interesting um, when you actually talk about disease state, would you say the barriers slightly change based on disease state. Thinking specifically uh, something that I'm passionate about is mental health. Mm. And just thinking about some of these barriers, I think probably stay the same and they're pretty consistent for the most part. But I wonder if, you know, some of the barriers kind of are a little bit more extensive on some ends, depending on the disease state. Would you say that's a fair conclusion? Yeah, 100%. Right. And I think the one you just mentioned, mental health is a is a great example of that, right? There are, to your point, some standard things that every patient population is going to struggle with, some process burdens, right? Some cost issues, whether or not it's a high cost biologic therapy or, you know, a pretty low cost generic pill, there's going to be somebody who that is beyond their means, right? Who might need additional support. Uh, but when you look at specific categories, and again, I think mental health is such a good one because it has been traditionally more stigmatized, right? Some of these patients are being looked at coming into a location. Maybe they're not taken as seriously. You're getting this trade-off of maybe worsening disease progression before you're actually noticed or you know diagnosed for what it's worth than facing a significantly worse situation. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. How do you begin to address these barriers? Yeah, <laughs> a very interesting question. Um, I think that that's really the challenge, right? That we see, our pharma partners see, right? What do we do about it? We acknowledge it, right? That these things are happening. 
we kind of try and put ourselves in the shoes of uh, of the end user of of the patients who need it most. Again, try and figure out from a health equity perspective how do we really level that playing field. And I think you see a lot of this happening sort of at baseline these days. You know, when I started having these conversations 15 plus years ago, it was in pockets, right? It was in those specialty areas. It was biotech, right? Not everybody was offering the same type of financial support. And and now you can't really launch any drug without saying, here's our coupon program. Here's uh, the support we offer to uninsured patients, things like that. So I do think it's a wave that has been coming and, it, and it's kind of crested and it's here. And there's those baseline things that right, I think we, we look at them as table stakes now when we approach a new drug coming to market. But it's also important, again, to sort of do that deep dive on the specifics of the patient population, the dynamics of the disease, the individual treatment path, all those things that factor into a patient journey and really try to optimize uh, your offering based on that. Yeah, it's interesting how you mentioned it beats become a table stake at this point. I think you know, as things evolve in the world, I think this is just one of those many things that everyone looks at and says, well, where is it if it's not already there? Speaking of health equity, how does health equity play a role here? Yeah, again, I, I think that's the overall goal um, of what manufacturers are trying to do, what we're trying to do as we partner with them is just to ensure that in any situation, regardless of who this patient is, what kind of insurance they have, what their financial situation is, um, what kind of background they come from, you know, their zip code, for example, no matter what, there shouldn't be something preventing any one of those people versus any one of those other people getting access to the medicine they've been prescribed, right? Especially when you look at you know, serious conditions, for example. I think the health equity is kind of the umbrella that this all sort of falls up to. Like, how do we, again, level that playing field and making sure nobody is at a disadvantage to anybody else? And sometimes, you know, in, certain individuals need a lot more help to get to a certain place than others, and that's okay. And to make them aware of the services and the programs and everything else that's that's out there that's available to help them. Absolutely. And when you're developing that patient access journey, are there questions that you ask when developing those and how like how do you leverage that journey perspective to fully benefit your patient's access barriers and solving those? Yeah, it's interesting. I think from a question standpoint, there's a few maybe standard questions, but I think it is it is very variable in terms of drug, disease state, patient population, et cetera. You have to ask all the questions, really, right? You have to get a full understanding of what it means from point A to point Z uh, for a patient to be starting their treatment journey and either ending it or getting to a place where they're on kind of a continuous treatment for a chronic condition, whatever it is, and really getting as detailed and as deep as possible, not just to say, hey, step four is to overcome access barriers, right? We've all seen high level kind of brand journeys that come from clients that just say, hey, this is access. We got to make sure they're covered. And then we got to, you know, potentially get them on a patient assistance program. And they kind of leave it at that. Any one of those points could be, you know, 50 steps of processes, um, you know, going anywhere, any number of different directions. And there may be things, again, that don't necessarily fit nicely in that bucket. 
So again, going through every phase of it and, and asking, again, just all the questions, what's happening at any given time and how can we play a role in these moments and how can we potentially change behavior in these moments or how can we deliver something that's going to help the patient through these moments and you know, I'll give you a perfect example of something I was recently kind of involved in a conversation around. Um, it was just a CAR-T product. And the brand was talking a lot about patients coming to these centers of excellence, which are spread out across the uh, country, but that's the only place you can get these treatments. And finding that, you know, a subset of the population really needed not only transportation assistance, but like lodging assistance and things like that while they were getting their treatments. Um, so that's not something that's going to be like top of mind in just the standard process as I'm building out a patient journey for cardiology product or something, right? That I, it would never even cross anybody's mind. But just understanding all those steps, all those places a patient has to go, where are they and where can we meet them, I think is super important in all of this. And that's really the only way that we're going to be able to identify all the barriers that might need to be removed. So one other thing to just kind of consider here is that the access component of the journey doesn't necessarily end at the treatment initiation stage, right? And a lot of times that's where we see brands and clients and even internal agent, you know, network partners kind of stop thinking about it, right? It's like we got them on therapy, they were covered, they might have gotten a, a assistance program support and we're done. You know, oftentimes a patient doesn't even realize that they need support until that first bill shows up two months later right. uh, or they're getting all their ancillary treatment costs and the bills are adding up. Right. And now they're saying, wow, I thought I was only going to have these costs. But now, like, it's really hitting my bank account. And, and you know, now I'm struggling. Um, and then we never know when a job loss occurs, a change of insurance. You know, some people go from commercial to Medicare, you know, any any number of these things can happen at any point in treatment. And especially that's true with chronic conditions. So we often aren't necessarily asking later, I would say, in the in the in the journey phases, you know, are you still okay? Do you still need to to learn about support, et cetera? At initial therapy, I might be saying, I'm good. I don't need this brochure. I don't need to have a conversation with my doctor. And if nobody's kind of coming back to me and, and letting me know it's okay to ask those questions, it might not happen. Right. And funny that you're saying what you just did, because as we were talking, I tend to just write down notes here. And I had just written down, you know, the idea of following through versus establishing those fixes to the barriers and the assistance to those barriers. So I think just hearing what you said, something for our audience to keep in mind is just really when you're looking at that patient journey is, yes, the upfront is really important, you know, getting them on the medication in a good place, but that follow through throughout the rest of their journey is just as important, if not maybe even more. Absolutely. Really interesting. Um, and then with just, you know, everything going on in our culture and the world today, government policies, um, definitely a sensitive topic, but what do you think, you know, the impact that these policy changes has on our state level and individual level in the U.S.? How is that affecting patient access and what we're talking about today? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I think oftentimes when we talk about policy change, right, we do talk about national policy change, right? 
things like the Affordable Care Act or any number of legislations that go through that impact kind of everyone. But when you mentioned state level specifically, you know, my mind goes to, you know, a specific component of the Affordable Care Act, which was uh, Medicaid expansion, right? And different states being able to take that in a specific way um, and make a decision. Are they going to expand? Are they going to not? And I think we have seen at this point that the states who did expand Medicaid are seeing better outcomes than those who did not. And so it makes sense to start talking about things from a, a state-specific basis. You know, honestly, we have a situation right now and sort of a tipping point in a, a post-Roe v. Wade uh, landscape where you're starting to see conversations in certain states about limiting access not only to the abortion services, right, that are covered under Roe v. Wade, but now we're having a conversation, a dialogue about birth control, other women's health products, you know, things of that nature. So you start to see what potentially could happen there, right? Are, are some of these things going to be limited in certain states? My mind also goes to like the example of medical marijuana, right? It's legal in one state, it's not in the other. What's the legality of taking it from a, a legal state to a non-legal state, et cetera. Could you ever get there with a women's health product? I hope not, <laughs> right? But those are the kind of things to start considering. Does my insurer have to cover these products in a different state than I live, right? If for me to go get it across the border and bring it back, it'll be really interesting to see how that's that sort of thing shakes shakes out. And again, hopefully we don't get to a situation where we're we're needing to make some of those decisions, but that could have impact on some of our women's health clients and, you know, planning for launch scenarios and, and you know, staying in market uh, in some specific areas. It's going to be a difficult thing to to start planning through. Definitely something really interesting to keep an eye on, um, just as you talk about, you know, the transfer between states and um, just thinking about how people live their lives in general. I mean, um, people move, people get divorced, people get married, people have children, things change. And that's just the constant in the world that we live in. Just thinking about that and how it relates to patient access is just really interesting. Thank you for going into that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of those other situations that we see a lot too is people are insured in a different state than where they work or where they live and things like that. So you have crossovers and you start to get into the you know, a lot of one-off scenarios that would take place if if you ever got to an area where access was limited or cost structures were different or right. know, any any of the above. Even thinking about um, children that are under their parents' insurance that go off to college, just thinking of, you know, women's health rights at that oh. point. I think that's something yeah. really interesting, too, to explore. Definitely a lot of individualized, personalized barriers that come up to think about, which is, which is difficult coming from a perspective, um, you know, getting into our next topic here about like how companies can help make their more products more accessible. I think, you know, that's just an interesting point coming off of that. How do you suggest that within the healthcare sector, how can our clients and how can companies take action to make their product more accessible? Just thinking about that also from a conscious inclusion standpoint. Sure. And I, I think we've talked a lot about some of those ways already today and i'll kind of double down on a few but you know one one thing i'll say up front right i think when this question gets asked in a lot of various contexts especially outside of really just our relationship with pharma 
the first place everybody goes is, well, everybody's got to lower their prices. The drugs are just too expensive, right? And I think we know there's other factors that go into pricing, right? A lot of these drugs take a lot of money to bring to market. Some of them now, especially as we get into very specialty, rare disease type of areas, you know, the patient population is so low that when you look at the billions of dollars invested to to produce a drug, at the end of the day, pharma is a business, right? They have to make those money, the money back somehow. So it can't be as simple necessarily as just a blanket statement of lowering prices. Prices do play in and right. We should be talking about that and working with our uh, partners, kind of thinking about smart pricing strategies, et cetera. But, you know, some of those things we already touched on, those those manufacturer support programs, the patient assistance offerings are a great start, right? Again, leveling that playing field from a financial standpoint. But then I think, again, looking at things like formulations even, right? Maybe moving from an infused product to a self-injectable formulation of it um, or an in-office injection to a a home injection or things like that that really make it more easy uh, for people who have transportation issues, right? Who can't get to a specialty uh, center, et cetera. Looking looking for ways to do it from that perspective. And then looking at that cultural relevance, right? Um, We talked a lot about it, right? What, What are some of the ways that we need to engage differently? with different audiences um, and the way that they interact with the healthcare system, right? Some of those are very deep-seated cultural approaches that we aren't necessarily thinking through when we're doing just general communications to a gen pop audience. So are there areas we need to modify our messaging to speak to the right person again at the right time? I think lastly, is just as much as possible, leveraging technology, looking at telehealth, looking at remote screening programs, um, helping people who you know might not be able to take that day off from work or to go from a rural area to a big city where there's a treatment center um, and get a screening, things like that. So just thinking in all those ways to reaching more people who have these specific barriers and just designing programs and services around them, not kind of just designing them and and shoehorning patient groups into them, I think is important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think just hearing what you're talking about, it just reminds me a lot of the idea of behavior change. I think especially for some of those groups that you mentioned that may have those deep-seated feelings towards whatever part of healthcare that they're working with. And I think behavior change plays a big part of that. And that's something that is also actionable on our end, something that we could do. I mean, we're not the healthcare companies, but we have a say in, you know, how they handle some of these things and we're here to help them and lead them. And I think behavior change is one of probably the many routes that can be taken. Yeah, absolutely. And it's to a certain extent, behavior change for ourselves, right? And our partners, not just the patients themselves. Absolutely. And then you had mentioned technology with the rise of digital tech from every corner of the world, everything you're doing from, you know, the metaverse to how you're communicating with your doctor, telehealth. How has digital technology changed patient access? Well, I think what I mentioned a second ago was that um, in some ways it's improved or it, it has the ability to improve patient access, right? As you look towards groups that don't have geographic access to certain services, right? You telehealth, you see those kind of things helping quite a bit. 
I'm seeing a lot of these kind of all-in-one platforms popping up. Hymns, hers, Roman, all these kind of things where you pull up a website, you have a consultation, you get your prescription, and it's mailed to your house, all kind of in a one-stop shop. So I think it's being piloted right now in some some specific areas. It seems to be men's health, women's health products. Currently, they're getting into mental health as well. But you can see that model kind of taking off. And I think it's not long until you start to creep into more specialty areas, et cetera, with some of that. And that, again, might lead to, to more people being able to access things. It might also, in some cases, do the opposite, right? We know not everybody has access to the same technology. So it's not always easy to get on those telehealth appointments for specific subsets of the population. So always kind of keeping that in mind as well. Like there's really no silver bullet in some of this. But I think when we think about technology as well, I'm encouraged by some of the technology solutions that I'm seeing for programs that are already in place, right? From being able to kind of push an omni-channel presence just from an awareness perspective, looking at enrollment processes, streamlining that, making that digital, right? No longer having to fill out paper forms and fax them in. You know, maybe some of these uh, enrollments come straight out of EHR, things like that. Anytime we can leverage these things to just make it more seamless and more available, I think that's going to be helpful across the board. Absolutely. Yeah. Ease of access, I, I don't think you can go wrong with. Do you think that this is shifted expectations for people for patient access? Do you think that ease of access is almost expected by patients nowadays? What are your thoughts on that? I think there's varying levels of it, right? Some of the folks who are more savvy, you see this a lot in the chronic conditions, right? When they've been on one product and maybe they're going to another, those individuals certainly have expectations of what's out there and what they should be able to get, what they should have access to. In other cases, you know, again, awareness is still the biggest barrier in all of this. We see a lot that people don't necessarily know what options are available and then often don't think they qualify for the options that are available or they think, I don't need the charity. Somebody else needs this more than me, that kind of thing. Like there's an attitude of that as well. So, you know, we have to look at it from all sides and just make sure we're, we're not getting complacent and saying like, we're going to have these offerings and we're just going to rely on patients to, to know that they're out there and know that they can get to them. We have to be kind of diligent in keeping it at the forefront and making sure as many people know as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I think just going back to when we spoke about patient access journey, I think there's even steps that go before establishing with the medication. I think even before there's there's many things that can be done to set this up for success. So how has the pandemic contributed or shed light on patient access in those conversations? Where do you see the future of patient access? Well, I think we, we kind of referenced a little bit earlier some of the conversations that that started to come up very early into the, the pandemic when we were start, starting to see where the case rates were worse, where the rates of death perspective were worse. And, you know, these other underprivileged communities really getting hit the hardest, right? And I think it opened up a broad national conversation about access and equitable access to healthcare, which, again, is is an overall positive. It's kind of a silver lining of the pandemic and this awareness that has that has come away from it. But I think it's a good call out again not to not to kind of get complacent, right? To to learn those lessons and and action on them and move forward 
in a positive way, uh, having now seen that, right, and and having this spotlight sort of cast on it. I think everybody's kind of open to the conversation. They want to hear that 6C. They want to hear about how do we do things to, to help ensure there's more health equity taking place. I think it's, a, again, an overall positive, and I think it's going to continue to be moving forward. But we can't let our foot off the gas. Um, and then I'll just add to that as of late, a lot of the conversation has been going towards the providers themselves and the burnout and the fact that they're more strapped for time and you know staffing isn't what it needs to be and there's been people quitting the field etc we have to kind of keep that in mind when we're developing solutions right we still rely on a financial counselor or a nurse navigator somebody in these roles to be our boots on the ground to be delivering some of these messages to patients and kind of coaching them through this process and that's happening less and less these days, not because people don't want to. It's just that, you know, they're trying to get by with their day and they don't have um, the bandwidth to do it. So right. um, it it really pushes the need for some of those digital solutions we talked about, some of that omni-channel messaging and really targeted messaging as well. So we can replicate what's not happening in practice anymore. You know, it's a challenge for us. It's a challenge for our clients to be thinking about it from that perspective and trying to do as much as possible to kind of pick up the slack because it's just not realistic um, in the practice and especially the hospital setting these days. Absolutely. I think that question to keep in mind as we all work through any of our brands and any of the things we do is just to continue asking who's getting left behind. And that seems to bring up a lot of the items that we've been discussing today. Who's getting left behind and what can we do about it? This was all extremely interesting. Dane, thank you so much for joining us this episode. That's all we've got for you today. You guys can subscribe to Truth Well Spoken on your podcast network of choice and let us know what you'd like to hear on a future episode by emailing podcast at mccannhealth.com. Our podcast producers are Dina Braga, Abby Daly, Jay Brinkowski, and Cassidy Cardone. Until next time, I'm Kelly O'Grady, and this has been Truth Well Spoken.